Welcome back to the Hemingway List Podcast for Button Books, Chapter 10. I thought J.R. Jr. was going to try to help Gotthold, then the old switcheroo. They were rather bold and confronting about inheritance back then, weren't they? As your discussion prompts, Swim said the mum fishy says, I got the impression that Buttonbrook's business must have gotten much more successful since Senior gave the money to Gotthold. Gotthold now wants more money since Senior now has more money. The company needs to have working capital. Working capital, also known as net working capital, is the difference between a company's current assets such as cash, accounts receivable, customers' unpaid bills, and inventories of raw materials and finished goods, and its current liabilities, such as accounts payable and debts. If Gotthold were to be given more money, the business would have less cash on hands, which would put the company at risk of not meeting their obligations and then possibly losing the company, and thus financial ruin. Junior feels guilty that he is reaping the benefits of the success of the company that Gotthold is not, but as a businessman he recognises it will be foolish to put the company at risk. I think he made the right decision. Business first, I guess. Couldn't they get Gotthold more? Oh no, I was going to say get him involved in the business, but he's running a shop. TA13190 says, A family has to be united to stay together, otherwise evil will come knocking at the door. Woods. Heavy foreshadowing again. Oof, sounds like a curse. Buddenbrook Sr. accuses his son's generation of fancies and Christian humbuggery and being money-hungry. Is this a general cranky you young people complaint, or a complaint that has some truth to it? Yeah, I think the translation was slightly different in uh, in the, what's it called translation, the one I'm reading? Low Porter. It wasn't Christian humbuggery. It was like, um, I can't think of the word. But it made me think like, he was saying that young people use christian morals to sort of get their own way like they bend the religion the meaning of the morals uh to try to prove a point you know so they just use it as a as a tool but they're not actually invested in the belief system something along those lines anyway uh what do we okay so we got to read Chapter 1 of Part 2. Is that right? And it's page 40-something. Sorry, you have to excuse me while I find the page. This happens every night. The um, the reader that I'm using doesn't save the page that I'm up to because it's just a web-based one. So I do find myself flicking around trying to find the right page. All right, here we go. I think I found it. Part 2, Chapter 1. If it loads, that would be awesome. If it loads. If it wants to load at some point. Come on. It was mid-April, two and a half years later. Oh, we've skipped two and a half years. Cool. The spring was more advanced than usual, and with the spring had come to the Buddenbrook family a joy that made old Johan sing about the house and moved his son to the depths of his heart. The console sat at the big roll-top writing desk in the window of the breakfast room at nine o'clock one Sunday morning. 
He had before him a stout leather portfolio, stuffed with papers, from among which he had drawn a gilt-edged notebook with an embossed cover and was busily writing in it in his small, thin, flowing script. His hand hurried over the paper, never pausing except to dip his quill in the ink. Both the windows were open and the spring breeze wafted delicate odours into the room, lifting the curtains gently. The garden was full of young buds and bathed in tender sunshine. A pair of birds called and answered each other pertly. The sunshine was strong too on the white linen of the breakfast table and the gilt borders of the old china. The folding doors in the bed, into the bedroom were open and the voice of old Johann could be heard inside singing softly a quaint and ancient tune. A kind papa, a worthy man, he rocks the baby in the cradle, he feeds the children sugar plums and stirs the porridge with a ladle. He sat beside the old green curtained cradle close to the Frau Consul's lofty bed and rocked it slightly with one hand. Madame Antoinette, in a white lace cap and an apron over her striped frock, was busy with flannel and linen at the table. The old couple had given up their bedroom to the Frau Consul for the time being to make things easier for the servants and were sleeping in the unused room in the entresol. Consul Buttonbrook gave scarcely a glance at his adjoining room, so absorbed was he in his work. His face wore an expression of earnest, almost suffering piety. His mouth slightly opened, the chin a little dropped, his eyes filled from time to time. He wrote, Today, April 14, 1838, at six o'clock in the morning, my dear wife Elizabeth Buttonbrook, born Kroger, was by God's gracious help happily delivered of a daughter, who will receive the name of Clara in holy baptism. Yea, the Lord hath Holpen mightily. For according to Dr. Grabau, the birth was somewhat premature and her condition not of the best. She suffered great pain. O Lord, God of Sabbath, where is there any other God save thee who helpest us in all our times of need and danger and teachest us to know thy will or right that we may fear thee and obey thy commandments? O Lord, lead us. And guide us all so long as we live upon this earth. The pen hurried glibly over the paper, with here and there a commercial flourish, talking with God in every line. Two pages further on, I have taken out, it said, an insurance policy for my youngest daughter of 150 Thaler current. Lead her, O Lord, in thy ways, give her a pure heart, O God, that she may one day enter into the mansions of eternal peace. For inasmuch as our weak human hearts are prone to forget thy priceless gift of the sweet blessed Jesus, and so on, for three pages. Then he wrote Amen, but still the paint scratching the faint scratching sound of the pen went on over several more pages. It wrote of the precious spring that refreshes the tired wanderer of the Saviour's holy wounds, gushing blood, of the broad way and the narrow way, and the glory of the eternal God. It is true that after a while the consul began to feel that he had written enough that he might let out let well enough alone and go in to see his wife or out to the country counting house. Oh, fee fee, did one so soon weary of communion with his Lord and Saviour? Was it not robbing his God to scant him of this service? No, he would go on as a chastisement of these unholy impulses. He cited whole pages of scripture. He prayed for his parents, his wife, his children, and himself. He prayed for his brother, got hold. And then, with a last quotation and three final amens, he strewed sand on the paper and leaned back with a sigh of relief. 
He crossed one leg over the other and slowly turned the pages with the notebook reading dates and entries here and there written in his own hand and thanking the Lord afresh as he saw how in every time of need and danger he had stretched out his hand to aid. Once he had lain so ill of smallpox that his life had been despaired of, yet it had been saved. And once, when he was a boy, a beer vat had fallen on him. A large quantity of beer was being brewed for a wedding in the old days when the brewing was done at home, and a vat had fallen over, pinning the boy beneath it. It had taken six people to lift it up again, and his head had been crushed so that the blood ran down in streams. He was carried into a shop, and as he still breathed, the doctor and the surgeon were sent for. They told the father to prepare for the worst and to bow to the will of God, but the Almighty had blessed the work of healing, and the boy was saved and restored to health. The consul dwelt a while upon this account, reliving the accident in his mind. Then he took his pen again, and wrote after the last Amen, Yeah, O God, I will eternally praise thee. Another time his life had been saved from danger by water when he had gone to Bergen as a young man, the account read, at high water, when the freight boats of the Northern Lion are in, we have great difficulty getting through the press in our landing. I was standing on the edge of the scow, with my feet on the thole pins, leaning my back against the sailboat, trying to get the scow nearer in, when, as luck would have it, the oak thole pins broke and I went head over heels into the water. First time I came up, nobody was near enough to get hold of me. The second time, the sow went over my head. There were plenty of people there anxious to save me, but they had to keep the sailboat and the scow off so that I should not come up under them. And all their shoving would probably have been in vain if a rope had not suddenly broke, broken on one of the sailboats belonging to the line so that she swung further out, and this, by the grace of God, gave me room enough to come up in free water. It was only the top of my head with the hair that they saw, but it was enough, for they were all lying on their stomachs with their heads sticking out over the sow, scow, and the man at the bow grabbed me by my hair, and I got hold of his arm. He was in an unsafe position himself and could not hold me, but he gave a yell, and they all took hold of him around the waist and pulled. I hung on, though he bit me to make me let go. So they got me in at last. There followed a long prayer of thanksgiving, which the consul reread with tear-wet eyes. On another page he said, I could write much more, or where were I minded to reveal the passions of my youth. The consul passed over this and began to read here and there from the period of his marriage and the birth of his first child. The union, to be frank, could hardly be called a love match. His father had tapped him on his shoulder and pointed out to him the daughter of the wealthy Kroger, who could bring the firm a splendid marriage portion. He had accepted the situation with alacrity, and from the first moment had honoured his wife as the mate entrusted to him by God. After all, his father's second marriage had been of much the same kind. A kind, perhaps a worthy man. He could still hear old Johann softly humming in the bedroom. What a pity he had so little taste for those old records. He stood with both feet firmly planted on the present, and concerned himself seldom with the past of his family. Yet in times gone by, he too had made a few entries in the gilt-edged book. The consul turned the pages, written in florid hand, on rather coarse paper that was already yellow-ing with age. 
They were chiefly about his first marriage. Ah, Johann Buddenbrook must have adored his first wife, the daughter of a Bremen merchant. The one brief year it had been granted him to live with her was the happiest of his life. Le an le plus heris de ma vie. He had written there. The words were underlined with a wavy line for all the world, even Mademoiselle Antoinette, to see. Then Gotthold had come and Josephine had died, and here some strange things had been written on the rough paper. Johann Buddenbrook must have openly and bitterly hated this child, even when, while still in the womb, it had caused his mother to faint and agonise under the lusty burden. He was born strong and active, while Josephine buried her bloodless face deeper in the pillows and passed away. Johann never forgave the ruthless intruder. He grew up vigorous and pushing, and Johann thought of him as his mother's murderer. This was, to the consul's mind, incomprehensible. She had died, he thought, fulfilling the holy duty of a woman that love I bore to her would have passed over in all its tenderness to her child. He said to himself, it had not been so. Later the father married again his bride, being Antoinette de Champs, the daughter of a rich and much-esteemed Hamburg family, and the two had dwelt together with mutual respect and deference. This consul went on turning over the pages. There at the end were written the small histories of his own children, how Tom had had the measles and Antoinette, Jaundice, and Christian chickenpox. There were accounts of various journeys he had taken with his wife to Paris, Switzerland, Marion Bad, excuse me. Then the consul turned back to the front of the book to some pages written in bluish ink in a handful of flourishes on paper that was like parchment but tattered and spotted with age. Here his grandfather Johann had set down the genealogy of his main branch of the Buddenbrooks. At the end of the 16th century, the first Buddenbrook of whom they had knowledge lived in Parashim, and his son had been a senator of Grabau. Another Buddenbrook, a tailor by trade, and very well to do, this was underlined, had married in Rostock and begotten an extraordinary number of children who lived or died, as the case might be. And again, another this time in Johann had lived in Rostock as a merchant from whom the consul's grandfather had descended. He had left Rostock to settle himself in this very town and was the founder of the present grain business. There was much about him set down in detail. When he had had the purples, and when genuine smallpox, when he had fallen out of the malt kiln and been miraculously saved, when he had, when he might have fallen against the beams and been crushed, how he had never, sorry, how he had had fever and been delirious. All these events were meticulously described. He also written down wise admonitions for the benefit of his descendants like the following, which was carefully painted and framed in a tall gothic script set off with a border. My son, attend with zeal to thy business by day, but do none that hinders thee from thy sleep by night. He had also stated that his old Wittenberg Bible was to descend to his eldest son, and thence from firstborn to firstborn in each generation. Consul Buddenbrook reached for the old leather portfolio and took out the remaining documents. There were letters or torn and yellow paper written by anxious mothers to their sons abroad, which the sons had docketed, received, and contents duly noted. There were citizens' papers with the seal and crest of the free Hansa town, insurance policies, letters inviting this or that Buddenbrook to become godfather 
for a colleague's child, congratulatory epistles, and occasional poems. Sons travelling for the firm to Stockholm or Amsterdam had written back to the parent or partner at home letters in which business was touchingly mingled with inquiries after wife and child. There was a separate diary of the consul's journey through England and Brabant. The cover had an engraving of Edinburgh Castle and the grass market. Lastly, there were Gotthold's late angry letters to his father, painful documents to offset which was the poem written by Jean-Jacques Hofstede to celebrate the housewarming. A faint, rapid chime came from above the secretary, where there hung a dull-looking painting of an old market square with a church tower that possessed a real clock of its own. It was now striking the hour in authentic, if tiny, tones. The console closed the portfolio and stowed it away carefully in the drawer at the back of the desk. Then he went into the bedchamber. Here the walls and the high old bed were hung with dark flowered chintz and there was in the air a feeling of repose, a convalescence, a calm after an anxious and painful, mild, dim, lighted atmosphere. The old pair bent over the cradle side by side and watched the slumbering child and the console's wife lay pale and happy in an exquisite lace jacket. Her hair carefully dressed as she put out her hand to her husband, her gold bracelets tinkled slightly. She had a characteristic way of stretching out her hand with the palm upward in a sweeping gesture that gave it added graciousness. Well, Betsy, how are you? Splendid, splendid, my dear Jean. He still held her hand as he bent over and looked at the child whose rapid little breaths were distinctly audible. For a moment he inhaled the tender warmth and the indescribable odour of well-being and cherished care that came from the cradle. Then he kissed the little creature on the brow and said softly, God bless you. He noticed how, like a bird's claws, were the tiny yellow crumpled fingers. She eats splendidly, Madame Antoinette said. See how she has gained. I believe on my soul she looks like Netta, old Johannes said, beaming with pride and pleasure. See what coal black eyes she has? The old lady waved him away. How can anybody tell who she looks like yet? She said, Are you going to church, Jean? Yes, it is ten o'clock now, and high time. I am only waiting for the children. The children were already making an unseemly noise on the stairs, and Clothilde could be heard telling them to hush. They came in in their fur, fur tippets, for it would still be wintry in St. Mary's, trying to be soft and gentle in the sick room. They wanted to see the little sister and then go to church. Their faces were rosy with excitement. This was a wonderful red-letter day for the stork had brought not only the baby sister, but all sorts of presents as well. How tremendously strong the stork must be to carry all that. There was a new seal-skin school bag for Tom, a big doll for Antony that had real hair, imagine that, for Christian, a complete toy theatre with the sultan, death and the devil, and a book with pictures for demure Clothilde, who accepted it with thanks, but was more interested in the bag of sweeties that fell to her lost as well to her lot as well. They kissed their mother and were allowed a peep under the green curtains of the baby's bed. Then off they went with their father who had put on his fur coat and taken the hymn book. They were followed by the piercing cry of the new member of the family who had just waked up. Alright, there's a chapter for you. A little baby. A new little baby for the Buddenbrooks. How lovely. Alright, thank you for listening. See you tomorrow.